Well, thank you. We are the, uh, the sad folk with nowhere to go on the eve of uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and nothing better to do than to turn up to uh, church again. Um, just uh, a reminder that if, you, uh, if you're technologically savvy, uh, you, you may ask a question uh, via uh, the Twitter page, uh, which is um, hashtag SOTQA, School of Theology Q&A, SOTQA. So if you know how to do that, I see Jay has already un- asked a question. Uh, I, may, I may attempt to, um, to answer in the course of the, of the evening. Well, I've had a number of questions, um, a dozen or so, and um, I think the rule is that if you asked a question and didn't turn up, I may not answer the question, uh, especially if the question was difficult, and some of them, some of them were very difficult. Uh, some of them were very um, helpful and practical and, uh, and useful, and I think useful for a wider audience than simply the person uh, who asked the question. And... Uh, I'm also conscious uh, that some are asking questions and are going, and are going to listen to the answers uh, via the uh, website and the download and may listen to these answers uh, a little later. So there's a wider uh, audience than, than just uh, us uh, here this evening. Uh, but before I begin, let me, uh, let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you. Thank you as we've spent a number of weeks contemplating uh, who you are and uh, some of the things that you have done, especially in the scriptures. And I pray tonight for your blessing uh, as we uh, think through a number of issues. We, we are conscious that uh, we need to be reminded afresh that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God and those things which are revealed uh, belong unto us and to our children. Help us not to pry in areas uh, where you have not disclosed yourself. Help us to bow and be reverent and to worship and to adore, to be content with not knowing, uh, knowing that you know and understand. But we do want to uh, use our minds, uh, instruct our wills and affections in the way that scripture would have us thinking Christ's thoughts after him as uh, humble and obedient servants, and we ask for your blessing. So guide us, direct us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first uh, question uh, was a very useful question, comment on the merit or otherwise of various translations of the Bible, uh, strengths and uh, and, and weaknesses, and uh, this goes back to um, where, we, where we began. We, we began uh, several months ago with the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, we began with the foundation of all of our knowledge. Uh, we said that everything that we know, even what we know about God, uh, we know because God has revealed it to us, and he's revealed it to us, uh, especially in uh, the Scriptures. Now this is a question about uh, Bible translations and uh, 
there are a couple of issues here. One, one of course, is the issue of the King James Version of the Bible. And uh, those who are devotees uh, of the King James Bible, there is no uh, persuading or otherwise. I understand that uh, for the best part of 20 years, I preached from the King James Version of the Bible and uh, dutifully said, Thee and Thou in prayer. Uh, which I've always found a little odd, and actually contrary, I think, to the way Scripture itself prays, uh, using different pronouns for deity. Uh, And that doesn't happen in Hebrew, and it doesn't happen in Greek, and it's an oddity of Elizabethan English that it actually happens uh, in the 17th, early 17th century. And for that matter, it happens in Welsh, but it happens the other way around, uh, and it's the more colloquial pronoun that's used in prayer to God uh, rather than uh, you you would use the equivalent equivalent of thee and thou in Welsh to your earthly father but you'd use the more colloquial uh, you in Welsh if you were speaking to God. Uh, The the reverse of what's happened uh, in Elizabethan uh, English. Well, uh, devotees of the received text and the King James Version uh, notwithstanding uh, what makes uh, what you know what makes for a good translation, and um, I think uh, we need to remember the Westminster Confession uh, talks about uh, one of the principles, Protestant principles uh, of the Reformation, uh, was the translation of the Bible into the vulgar tongue, uh, Luther's German Bible, uh, Tyndale or Latimer's uh, English uh, Bibles. Uh, these uh, these uh, Tyndale, of course, was burnt uh, at the stake for for the very principle of translating scripture uh, into the common language, not uh, not the language of the literati, not the language of uh, academics, uh, but the language of uh, the average person who could read. Um, and I think that's an important principle. Language does change. Uh, we don't speak in 2012 the same way. Uh, that we spoke 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And uh, so translation is, a, is an ongoing uh, imperative. Uh, one of the issues, uh, for example, here at uh, First uh, Presbyterian Church, the, the Pew Bible is the ESV. Uh, the Bible, it so happens, the Bible that uh, Dr. Ferguson preaches from and in the morning and the one that I preach from in the evening uh, is the ESV. Uh, the ESV... Um, is a good example of, uh, I think, a good translation and a good uh, policy of translation. One of the issues is uh, translation, I think, must follow um, your doctrine of Scripture. If, if you believe the Bible is inerrant and you believe that every word of the Bible is God's word, and not just the words but the grammar and, and, and even for that matter uh, the conveying of um, of idioms. Uh, these are all inspired by God, and uh, one of the issues is the issue of dynamic equivalence uh, or formal equivalence, uh, strict equivalence. Uh, the NIV, for example, went for the principle of dynamic equivalence, that is to say, um, getting, getting the, the, the general gist uh, of what is being said uh, across, but perhaps in an idiom that we are more uh, familiar with. Um, today rather than oh an example would be um, greet one another with a holy kiss so the NIV 
uh, might, I forget what the NIV said, but the NIV might have gone with a dynamic equivalent saying, you know, greet, with another, greet one another with a good handshake. Uh, now, it is conveying, I think, the sense of what a holy kiss was. But if you believe, if you believe in inerrancy, um, a good translation, I think, must translate formally, and it must translate. It must, it must, it must produce a Bible uh, that actually translates um, the very, the very thought and idiom uh, of the original. So. Uh, the ESV will translate that passage, greet one another with a holy kiss, rather than, you know, with a good handshake. Um, the, the issue being one of uh, formal uh, equivalence. There are some principles, I think, uh, that are important in a good translation. It, it must provide, a good translation must provide um, an English word or phrase uh, that is equivalent uh, to every word that appears in the original text. Uh, it mustn't deceive by adding a commentary of its own in the process of translation. Uh, it mustn't uh, omit anything, uh, not even connectives. Uh, one, of the, one of the beefs, and you'll have heard uh, in the past perhaps Dr. Ferguson uh, having uh, some irritation uh, with the NIV especially, because it, 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 uh, it omits things like behold. Uh, Luke, for example, loves to, loves to stick in a, a word, idu in Greek, uh, behold. Uh, uh, this is important. This is important. And uh, the NIV decided there were so many of them that it, um, they were losing significance, so they omitted those, uh, those little connectives. Uh, a, a connective um, like, like a but at the beginning of a sentence can be, can be very important uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, a sign of, uh, of wanting to convey um, emphasis. And it's not the business of a translator to say what is important and what isn't important. The business of a translator is to provide you with as, an, as accurate and readable and uh, those two can sometimes work against each other. Um, uh, one of the best um, uh, books here, uh, if you want to pursue this whole issue, um, if you're into the King James Bible, then Leland Ryken's uh, The Legacy of the King James Bible. Um, the ESV and the English Bible Legacy, again by Leland uh, Ryken, and The Word of God in English by... Leland Riken. Uh, Leland Riken, the father of uh, Philip Riken, uh, who uh, teaches English at uh, Wheaton, uh, has done an enormous amount of uh, thought and, uh, and obviously has published at least three books uh, on the whole business of, um, of translation. So that's, uh, that would be my answer to, uh, to um, the first question uh, I, I am very happy with uh, not only the philosophy of the translation policy of the ESV uh, and, and somewhat unhappy and, and increasingly unhappy with the translation policy, say, of the NIV and particularly the TNIV um, because the TNIV has gone for uh, gender inclusiveness and, and therefore is working contrary to the original text. And, and adopting its own uh, philosophy and, and therefore changing the original text and that's not the business of a translator.
Uh, second question, um, how do we respond to statements that the Earth is, a million, uh, is millions of years old? Uh, well, this is a slightly naughty question uh, in that we haven't yet covered the doctrine of creation, uh, which is coming up shortly. Uh, it will it be, be one of the topics uh, in the next uh, semester uh, of topics. Um, uh, I think, I think I, my, my immediate answer would be to say, actually, try billions rather than millions. Uh, I think the current consensus is something like 13.5 billion years old rather than millions uh, of years. And there's a lot of difference between millions and, and billions. Uh, actually, when I went to seminary, uh, the consensus was something like 4 or 5 billion, uh, and now it's something like 13 billion. So, um, you know, 8 billion uh, years have been added to the age of the Earth in my lifetime. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't get all aerated about, you know, the findings of science that they have written in uh, tablets of stone or anything. Uh, I mean, just wait a little. It's like the weather in South Carolina. You only have to wait a little and it'll change. And, uh, and, and I think here, I think, uh, I think the science is still young and evolving and, uh, and who knows what. And I don't, I don't really get um, all that fussed about it. Um, if, if, if you are a 24-hour creation day uh, advocate, if you believe that uh, the days of Genesis uh, 1 especially uh, are uh, tw literal 24-hour uh, days, then, then you, you have a limited choice here. Uh, the age of the earth, if that is the case, the age of the earth cannot be more than, I mean, let's be generous, and, you know, Archbishop Usher said that the chronology of the Old Testament was 4,004 uh, years from Adam uh, to Christ. Well, uh, let, you know, there are gaps in the, in, the, in the genealogies in Genesis, so let's be generous. Let's, let's say 25,000 years. I mean, let's be, let's be super generous. Let's say 50,000 years old. Ah, it's Thanksgiving. Let's say 100,000. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a drop in the ocean in comparison to 13 billion years old, right? I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not trying to bring science and faith together by saying the earth is 100,000 years old. Uh, 100,000 would be difficult to, to put into the Old Testament. Um, even with the gaps in the genealogies, you know, I, I think at most you can say 20, 25,000 years. So what's your choice? You've only got one choice. You've got to say, God created the world to look old. Now, is that so hard to believe as, as what's the alternative? The alternative is a big bang. Well, what caused the big bang? What was there before the bang? You know, what what banged, in other words, <laughs> right? And, and those are, Im, those are Im, impenetrable questions. Science can't answer those questions. So is, is, that so is it so difficult to believe that God could create a world that looks old? Uh, perhaps to test your faith. Perhaps. Who, who knows? Um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't find that any more, any more implausible than, than the alternative. And the alternative is a big bang. And, and, and what banged exactly? You know, so 
Uh, I don't really get fussed about it. Uh, some uh, believe that the days of Genesis are, are not 24 hours and they are length, lengthy periods of time. Uh, even, even for some to accommodate perhaps you know, billions of years. Uh, that's not my view. I'm a, I'm a 24-hour kind of guy. I, I find it hard to reconcile the the straightforwardness of the Hebrew text, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm not about to part company or, or unfellowship myself with those who think that uh, the, the day, the Hebrew word for day, uh, yom in, in Genesis, is capable of uh, lengthy periods of, uh, of time. Uh, Neil went to Gordon Conwell, uh, sat under Klein, I imagine, so he, he probably heard that view espoused. Uh, and some of my dearest friends uh, uh, in the ministry uh, hold that view. Uh, and um, uh, the, the PCA, for example, the Presbyterian Church in America that uh, I was a member of before I came into the ARP, uh, had its uh, little, little creation study. Uh, debate uh, ten years ago or so, and, uh, and and said that that view was compatible uh, with the view of the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, there's a there's a line in the sand, however, that you that you can't cross, and the line in the sand is a historical Adam. So even if you um, even if you believe that the earth has been around for billions of years, the universe has been in existence for billions of years, and you can reconcile that with length of days in Genesis, um, there's, an, there's an absolute line in the sand here. There's a boundary marker, and the boundary marker is a historical Adam and an historical Eve from which the whole of humanity has descended. Now, if you cross that line, if you... If you, if you advocate a view that man has descended through theistic evolution, God ordered evolution from uh, something like a hominid or maybe, maybe 50,000 different hominids, I think you've crossed the line. I, th- I think that it makes uh, nonsense of what Paul is saying in Romans 5, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now if you believe, as I do, in the absolute necessity for a historical Adam and an historical Eve, um, even if you can stretch the universe to billions of years, you can't stretch humanity to billions of years. In fact, you can't stretch humanity to millions of years. You can't stretch humanity to more than about 25,000. Well, I'm going to be generous, 100,000 years. Now, that's all that the, the narrative of the Old Testament will allow you if you insist on a historical Adam and Eve, as I do. So either way, either way here, we are completely countercultural, and we are completely in opposition here to the, the so-called findings of science. Actually, it's not a finding, it's a philosophy. It's, it's a theory. It's a, it's a philosophical theory about origins um, ba- based on other philosophical theories uh, about evolution uh, and, and trans-species evolution. So that's... Uh, and it depends on who was asking the question as to how much of all of that I would actually go into. Uh, um, but um, the fact that the universe may be very old, uh, you know, maybe, maybe for some compatible with the uh, day-age view of, uh, of Genesis. But it doesn't get you past the issue of how long has, has, have human beings been on earth. And I think the Old Testament limits you, limits you very severely. Uh, on that uh, uh, on that issue
Now, uh, these are questions and answers. You can ask a question. I imagine you can even disagree, I suppose. Uh, I'm not sure how I would, how I would uh, referee that. But if you want to ask a, a follow-up question uh, at any point, I mean, just do so within the normal rules of, uh, uh, of exchange. And uh, we do need to try and record this. So if you do ask a question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to repeat the question so that uh, it can be heard uh, audibly on, uh, on tape. Yes? We should also follow the line the saying that since there has to be a historical atom, there cannot be death before atom. Yes, I'm going to hold that question until we actually deal with, uh, with creation itself. Um, I, think, I think that if you believe in uh, uh, um, the creation of Adam, you can, you, can, you can, I suppose, believe that there were other um, creatures on Earth for a while before there were humans, I suppose. Uh, if you're stretching out the sort of age, the, day, the, the, the length of the days, in, in, in which, and it depends then what you mean by death, uh, is, uh, is plant life, um, eating grass, I mean, is that death? Is, uh, is cellular destruction at, on a plant level death? Uh, and I think, uh, I think those, are, those are moot questions uh, as to... Um, I, 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 certainly think, I certainly think that there is a, an injunction upon human death, which is the result of sin. But is there, um, you know, will, will, uh, will all animals in the new heaven and new earth, and there I go again, uh, will they all be herbivorous? And, and, will, and, and will that, you know, Jesus ate fish in his resurrection body, um, you know, that is a death of some kind. So the, the question is actually a little more complicated than that. And, and I think the question that really needs to be asked is, is human death um, the result of sin? Uh, and, and I think the answer of Genesis is yes, uh, that there would have been no human death uh, apart from uh, Adam's fall. I think that's where I would answer that. Uh, there's a, a question, number three, explain the difference between nature and person. Uh, and um, I, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this. Um, we're going to look at this question again when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, when we talk about God as uh, one nature and three persons. Um, I, I think the easiest handle on the idea of person, person uh, was, a, was, a, was a, a term employed uh, by Tertullian in the discussions on the Trinity to single to, to identify three in oneness that the, that, the, that the oneness of God was not an undifferentiated monad that the oneness of God had differentiation I think the easiest way to get a handle on person is to use the term he or him who is the who is the he who is operating? Who is, who is the him? Uh, and and um, by nature, uh, we, mean, we mean the essence uh, of uh, our, you know, what, a person, what, what that person is like. What are the characteristics of that person? Uh, what, are the, what are the qualities of that person? So that's, that would be the difference between uh, nature and person. 
nature usually is a handle for the oneness, and person is usually a handle for the for the threeness uh, when we when we're talking about um, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Question uh, four, God's omniscience. Um, Is it flawed theology to teach that God's testing is is for the purpose of determining my heart and or learning how I'll react to the testing? Would not his omniscience make testing for that purpose unnecessary and even superfluous? Well, yes, if, if we mean that God is, is discovering things he didn't know before. And I think the testing here is not so that God may discover something. God knows everything. But the, the testing is, I think, so that we may discover what's in our hearts. Um, and and I, I think that's how I would see God, God's omniscience. God's omniscience means that in relation to himself, he knows everything. But God's relationship to us, he accommodates himself. And it looks as though God... Is, uh, is involved uh, in space and time uh, like we are. Of course, we, we've, we've called that, as we've been considering that, a, a sort of an anthropomorphism. Uh, God, is, uh, God is accommodating himself in the same way that uh, some of you will accommodate yourself to your little grandchildren tomorrow, and you'll get down on your hands and knees, and you'll say things that you'll be embarrassed if they were recorded and played back uh, in a company of uh, adults. Uh, I think that's how I would um, answer that question. Uh, God accommodates himself. Uh, He accommodates his sovereignty. Um, I'm going to pass by uh, question five, I think, for the purposes of uh, time here, and and skip to question six. Uh, It's a rather technical sort of question. Uh, Is it possible that man was created and his fall decreed in order for sacrificial love to be expressed within the Godhead. Jesus said in John 10:15, I lay down my life for the sheep, and goes on to say in 10:17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. Since God has perfect potential and anything he purposes will in fact come about, the fact that God had purposed creation, the fall and the atonement by and through Christ Jesus from eternity past, would that mean that sacrificial love has always existed within the Godhead? And does this mean that without the creation, fall, and atonement, sacrificial love would not have existed? Well, um, if you look at question seven, uh, right at the end, he says... uh, I hope this doesn't fall into the type of questions posed by Rutherford and Twiss uh, in Lesson 13. You remember uh, Rutherford and Twiss asked questions that I, I uh, sort of hinted at were uh, questions that they shouldn't have asked. Um, and I think this is a, this is a kind of a question um, that shouldn't really be asked. I think it's a question that has been asked, and it's been asked many times, uh, Augustine, I think, asked this question and, and answered it. Let me put it in a, in a different way. Uh, what this person is asking is, um, if, um, if there had been no sin, if there had been no fall, there would have been no need for the kind of sacrificial love that you see in the cross. 
So we would never have seen, we would never have witnessed the extravagance of God's love that, that, that we relish, that we, love, that we adore, that we, that we find ourselves completely absorbed by. Uh, for me to live is Christ. Uh, we, we, we glory in the cross of Christ because it reveals the sacrificial love of God. But had there been no fall, uh, there would have been, uh, had there been no sin in the world, then, uh, then we wouldn't have seen that kind of sacrificial uh, love. So Augustine conjectured in his um, confessions um, a view known as, um, in, in Latin, uh, Felix culpa, uh, meaning happy fault, um, that, the, that the purpose of God's um, ordaining sin, now he's not the author of sin, but he ordains sin, he creates a universe in which sin is possible, uh, that the purpose of God in ordaining sin, in, 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 in ensuring uh, a world in which there would be sin, uh, is in order to display his sacrificial uh, love. Um, I, I, it depends on which day of the week it is. I, I, uh, I, I think I can go along with that. And uh, some, some of the great theologians have gone along with that. And uh, Paul Helm, for example, I think in... Uh, uh, one of the great Calvinistic philosophers of our time uh, goes along with that view. I do remember, however, and um, he's not here tonight, but I do remember being asked this question uh, at a Ligonier conference and answering it much along the lines that I'm answering it now and then discovering that Dr. Ferguson did not agree. Uh, and uh, so you need to ask this question uh, to Dr. Ferguson. I suggest that you email him in the middle of his wedding celebrations this weekend, and ask him, does he agree with uh, Augustine's um, Felix Culpa doctrine? Um, it, it's, it's, one of these, it's one of these imponderable questions, uh, you know, that begins with, what, what would the world have been like if... Um, uh, it's a kind of hypothetical. Uh, what would we have known of God if there had been no sin? You know, we would not have known Calvary. We would not have known the cross. Adam, in the covenant of works, would have been translated from his position of probation to, a, to a, a, another position uh, entirely. Um, you know, Isaac Watts uh, said something about this in, in his hymn, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. Don't bother looking for this uh, verse in Trinity because Trinity dropped the verse out. Um, but the, one of the verses in that marvelous hymn that we, we sing and, and love goes like this. In him, the tribes of Adam boast more glories than their father lost. Now, I want you to try and follow the logic of that. Had Adam, had Adam not lost, he would have gained certain glories. But we gain far more glories because of the cross. In other words, God reveals more of his bounty and his love because of the cross than had there been no cross, had there been no sin. Uh, so, so I think Isaac Watts is also following the line of Augustine's um, Felix Culpa uh, doctrine. Now, that's, what I would that's how I would answer the question, I think, sort of, sort of philosophically, 
with some conjectures, I think, from Scripture. I, I do think, however, that questions, hypothetical questions, are, are always dangerous questions to actually answer with any definitive uh, and concrete um, answers. You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 uh, must act as a kind of break on some of our questioning, uh, that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, uh, and those things which are revealed uh, belong unto us and uh, to um, our children. Uh, I'm going to go to question eight. Um, Since God is sovereign over all things, is it accurate to say that nothing will happen to us that is outside of God's will? And then there's a a kind of follow-up question. Uh, Growing up in a Baptist church, I was taught that God has a perfect will and a permissive will. Is this accurate? Uh, And the answer is yes and, and kind of yes. Uh, I, I would use different terminology, but, uh, but, but let's go with yes and yes. Um, nothing happens without God willing it to happen. God's control is uh, total. And, and uh, so Romans 8.28 governs the entirety of human existence. All things work together for good. And that includes good things, bad things, evil things, wicked things, terrible things, unmentionable things, awful things. It, it includes... Uh, Auschwitz uh, and Buchenwald and, uh, and, the, and the gulags of uh, Soviet Union and uh, Pol Pot and, and, and every imaginable horror that you can think of, but it also includes Calvary. Uh, it also includes Calvary. And so Peter says on the day of Pentecost, you know, it was you by wicked hands who took him and slew him, but it was all by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Uh, God is in total and absolute control. Uh, It's the basis on which uh, Joseph can say uh, in uh, Genesis 49 uh, about his brothers, you know, he spent uh, 10 years in prison accused of rape, falsely accused of rape. Um, He's been been sold into slavery, uh, left for dead, sold into slavery, um, and then and then he says, you know, you meant it for evil, uh, but God meant it for good. God was in control. So there are no, um, you know, the future isn't risky. That's, that's the great issue. Is, uh, is providence risky? Is the future risky for God? You know, is, is it uncertain? Uh, is there an event, a circumstance out there, you know, in 2014... Uh, in 2026, is there, is there one circumstance, one, one uh, stray atom, one molecule that just won't, won't bend the knee uh, and bow to God's sovereign decree? That sounds like the beginning of a hymn. Um, but uh, no, uh, God's control is absolute and total. If that wasn't so, there could be no uh, prophecy. You couldn't predict the future. God could not uh, guarantee the second coming of Jesus if the future was risky. It, it would only take one event to bring all of the future come crashing down. God isn't you know, running around trying to sort of uh, put his, his program back together again, you know, mending all the little faults along the way, uh, like, uh, like in that, um, that movie. I don't even remember, I'm hopeless with movies, but um, I'll drop that analogy. Um, So, the answer to the first part of the question is, um, is it accurate to say that nothing will happen to us that is outside of God's will? 
The, the problem then arises, of course, is that we use the, we use the term of the will of God in more than one way. Um, it is not God's will for you to murder. I mean, it is and it isn't. Right? It may be his will of decree, but it's not his will of permission. You know, we, we, talk, about, um, we talk about God's um, decretive will and we talk about God's preceptive will. By God's preceptive will, we mean, we mean things like the Ten Commandments. You know, what is God's will for you that you, should, uh, that you should love him with all of your heart, that you should love your neighbor as yourselves? That's God's will. It's not God's will for you not to love him. It's not God's will for you uh, to uh, steal or murder or pillage or envy or lust or whatever. That's not God's will for you. you know, so we use, we use the term the will of God in more than one way. And uh, we, use the, we use the decretive will of God and we, and we talk about the preceptive will of God. And, and various people have different uh, terms for it, for it. And the questioner seems to have the term perfect and permissive, and, that, and that's okay. Uh, the, the current jargon is um, the decretive will of God, uh, which is always done. And then there's the preceptive will of God, for which we pray. And we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we're in the ESV, as opposed to the King James. Um, but that's a, that's, a great, uh, that's a great question. Now question number nine um, is, a, is a very involved question. It's a very good question. Uh, it's, it's a very relevant question, up-to-date question. It, it shows someone who's, uh, who's I think, wrestling with, um, with current issues that are around and worldviews that are floating around. Uh, and so the person says, um, I want to say that I personally believe uh, the Bible as we have it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Uh, I, by faith, believe this is true, though I do not have scientific proof. My question relates to the fact that the Jews have a Torah, Old Testament. The Bible is one of the holy books of Islam. And the Catholics have a version of the Bible as well, uh, by which the by which he means, I think, here that uh, uh, the Catholic Bible also contains what's called the apocryphal books of uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, the Muslim claims our Bible has changed and has been altered in many places, not the least of which was to swap the places of Ishmael and Isaac. Muslims think that Constantine had our Bible changed. Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah does not appear in the Torah as it does in our Bible. And many others claim that the Bible canonization process has excluded books that should have been included in light of these points. What is the proof that our Bible is um, correct? Uh, you know, it's a multi-leveled uh, question, and, and, and some, of the, some of the things in the question are, are true in, in terms of the allegations that are made, and some of the things in the question need to be uh, contextualized a little, uh, a little more. Um, uh, the Quran um, identifies books uh, known as um, uh, the, the Torah or the Torah, uh, given 
uh, to Moses. It identifies the Psalms uh, given to uh, David. And it identifies the Gospels given to Jesus as genuine divine revelations uh, brought by uh, true uh, messengers uh, to the Jews and the followers of Abraham. Uh, And together with the uh, Quran itself, um, there there are uh, other books that it subscribes to, uh, the scrolls of of Abraham. Uh, And uh, these make up the the Kitab, uh, the the Islamic um, holy uh, books. Now, uh, let me comment uh, on the merit or otherwise uh, of... um, um, uh, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole issue of um, allegations that are made. Uh, you know, some of the allegations that are being made in this question about uh, um, uh, Constantine, for example, changing the Bible. I, I mean, this is not this is not a peculiarly Islamic claim. This is a claim that's being made today by liberal New Testament scholars, uh, the Jesus Seminar, um, uh, Crossan and others, uh, who have been, uh, who have been uh, vocal for the last 10, 12, 15 years, uh, going around uh, university campuses all around the United States as a, as a movement Uh, basically um, suggesting that we cannot uh, in any way trust um, the scriptures as we know them because uh, because of uh, um, additions that have been made and particularly by the advent of um, Constantine in the in the fourth century so so that's not a peculiarly Islamic claim I think that Islam uh, current Islam may be picking up on on these allegations that are being thrown around in Christianity today and, 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 and maybe using them uh, and, and abusing them in our, uh, in our ears. So I think, uh, I think the question needs to address the whole issue of the canon, uh, the, the canon of the Old Testament and the canon of the New Testament. How do we, you know, how do we have the Bible uh, as we have it uh, today? Um, canon meaning uh, a, a measuring line or a, or a, or a standard of measurement. Um, now, uh, the, whole, the whole study of canon has gone through something of a revolution uh, in recent years uh, by conservative scholars. Uh, some, of the, some of the best scholars on canon are actually within a few hundred miles of here tonight. Um, uh, uh, who've done, who've done uh, enormously impressive work, uh, painstaking work, historical research on the whole business of canon. It, w- when I went to seminary, it was, it was kind of held that the Council of Jamnia, which was actually around about AD 90, was the council that finalized the Old Testament canon. And, and that is now regarded as completely inaccurate, that the Old Testament canon was actually finalized um, sort of immediately after the return from the exile. As soon as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles uh, were written, um, that even, even the likes of the Samaritans, uh, who, who certainly altered the canon 
in the century before Jesus, so that the Samaritans had a different canon in Jesus' time, and that's self-evident in the Gospels. But before, say, 200 years, even the Samaritans held to the same uh, Jewish canon. So, so the, the Old Testament canon... Uh, there was a view at one time that there was a, an Alexandrian canon and a Palestinian Old Testament canon. And that, and that view is now largely been debunked. And that the Old Testament canon was a standard canon uh, and understood to be a standard canon. So, so how do we know what the Old Testament canon was? It was the canon that Jesus would have used. Uh, and we know what that is. Um, it's the canon that was, uh, that was uh, translated uh, into, into the uh, Septuagint, into the Greek translation. When they could no longer read uh, Hebrew, they, they translated it into the uh, Septuagint. And we, know, and we know what that canon is, the 39 books of the Old Testament. There's no, there, is no, um, there is no dispute as to what uh, the Torah uh, and the prophets and the writings, the three sections of the Hebrew canon, uh, there's no dispute as to what they were, what they contained. Um, so, 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 so dispute over the Old Testament canon is, is largely, I think, moot. Um, the New Testament canon is uh, a, a, little, um, a, a little more um, complicated, uh, but, not, but not that complicated. Um, uh, you know, there are various views as to how the New Testament canon was brought about, and there's the view that the church sort of made a decree as to what the canon is. That's largely the Roman Catholic view that the church canonized scripture. It, it looked at it, gave its verdict, and the church said, this is what canon is. The Protestant view of the canon, and uh, this is where research has been done in recent years, uh, historical research, painstaking uh, research has been done, um, uh, that by uh, the seventh paschal letter of uh, Athanasius, uh, or the Council of Carthage uh, in the fourth century, uh, the, the New Testament canon was uh, was 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 sealed. It was um, it was a recognition of books that were already viewed as canonical within the church. They they authenticated themselves. Uh, what were the criteria for authentication? Uh, one was that they conformed to the rest of Scripture. That they didn't they didn't. Uh, teach something that was completely out of accord uh, with another part of scripture. So um, certain books fell by the wayside because they were teaching things that were contrary to what the rest of scripture were teaching. Um, They had to be apostolic. Now apostolic in a broad sense, uh, not just the 12 apostles or or at least the 11 apostles minus Judas uh, plus Matthias perhaps, but but um, so, so James and Jude were included because they were brothers of Jesus and, and, and they were Im- immediately recognized as canonical. Peter talks about Paul's letters as, as alongside the other scriptures. He does that in the New Testament itself. So even by the time Peter is writing, Paul's letters are already seen and received as um, canonical. Uh, there were... There were misgivings uh, about Second Peter, James, because of the emphasis on works, uh, the book of Revelation, because nobody really understood it. Um, so there, there, there were some misgivings about certain books, but they were, they were still included within the canon. 
Uh, and, and really nothing changes in the New Testament canon from uh, about the third century onwards. Um, that, that uh, you know, it's, it's not a process like today where you publish it on the internet and everybody sees it all at once. You're talking about a church scattered throughout Europe uh, and, and North Africa uh, where copies of copies and, and some churches perhaps only had a copy of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. They didn't even have Second Peter. You know, it, it, took, it took several hundred years for all of these copies to, 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 to get into a form that all the churches uh, agreed these are the books of the, of the New Testament. Um, so so I, think, uh, I, I think that the study of canon is a difficult study. Uh, it's, a, it's a historically difficult study. Um, but it's important for us to understand that the church at no point... Um, gives its own verdict on canonicity. It is a recognition of whether a book was perceived in the churches to be canonical. Uh, and certain books were and certain books weren't. Now there are all kinds of crazy allegations out there. The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and so on. Um, uh, about uh, the, the extent of apocryphal books, uh, you know, you, you can read the literature. I mean, Dan Brown talks about 3,000 uh, books sort of vying for canonicity. And that's, that's absolutely crazy. At most, at most, there are 30 or 40. Uh, so, I mean, those figures are just completely absurd. I mean, f- for example, one, one would be, um, you know, the Gospel of Judas, um, um, there's the Gospel of Peter, there's the Gospel of Thomas, there's the Gospel of Pilate. I mean, there's, 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 there's a lot of them. There are probably 15 or 20 acts of, you know, there are acts of Luke, and then there are, which, which is in the Bible, but then, then there are other acts. Uh, and, and these are books uh, that, that, are, that are out there. Um, uh, but none of them ever received uh, recognition within the church. Uh, just, they just weren't viewed as canonical. The Bible authenticates itself. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the premise of canonicity, that the Bible is self-authenticating. Uh, it, it testifies to its own canonicity. It's not something that's given from outside. And when it fails that test, it, it, it fails canonicity. Uh, so these... Uh, these books are out there, they're, they're interesting, they're fascinating, some of them are absolutely crazy. Uh, so, some of them have, you know, they're, they're wonderful to read, uh, and, uh, but they have, I mean, incredibly fanciful uh, sort of uh, stories. So I, I think if you want to study um, canon, um, you know, one, one, one popular book, you know, would be Daryl Bach's um, The Missing Gospels. Um, Daryl Bach is a conservative uh, evangelical scholar, Dallas uh, Seminary, um, leading one of the leading experts in this uh, in this uh, in this field. Um, question ten: um, I would like to ask Dr. Thomas, infralapsarian or supralapsarian, and the answer to that is wait until February, and I will tell you. Uh, question 11, uh, what are uh, some practical ways uh, that we can improve our prayer life and communion with Christ? And this is a, this is a great little question. Um, be a segue for us to pray in a minute.
Um, you know, there are no secret formulas. I've uh, been a Christian for 40 years. Uh, I've had wonderful times of private devotions, and I've had terrible times of private devotions. And it's, uh, it's an, it's a, it's, it oscillates. Um, and and there's, there's no magic um, formula. I, I do think that one thing for me is, is just discipline. Yeah, that's not a great word, is it? Discipline and prayer. I mean, it is a discipline. It's, it's, creating, it's creating a time uh, every day when you just do it. And you do it whether you feel blessed by it or not. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you do. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's like preaching. I mean, you have to preach through the bad times as well as the good times. And there are, there are days when, you, when, when preaching feels dull and distant, and, and there are days when, when you pray and it feels as if uh, the prayers are just bouncing uh, back at you. But um, uh, things that have helped me uh, in praying have been uh, using a hymn book, using a hymn book as a devotional, uh, singing a hymn to myself. Uh, praying out loud has been a help to me. Uh, sometimes uh, sitting in a chair, you know, the older you get, sitting in a chair doesn't do it. I, I fall asleep. Uh, you know, something I didn't do when I was younger, but these days uh, that doesn't work for me so well. So I pray when I walk. Uh, and uh, I can pray with my eyes open. And uh, when, I see, uh, when I see something, I deliberately turn it into a prayer. Uh, when things come to my memory, uh, I, I, I'm, I deliberately say, now I'll spend some time praying about this before I forget it again. Uh, so I want to pray about that. I keep a journal. Um, uh, you know, I have... Uh, I have all kinds of aids on my iPhone, uh, reminders and stuff, and if somebody says, uh, you know, if I say I'll pray for you about this, I I try to write it down there uh, so that I can remember to pray for such and such a person and and so on. Um, I find uh, daily reading um, helps, like McShane's calendar. Uh, I find that incredibly helpful. Uh, This year I'm using the ESV that's designed to be read through in a year. It's been, it's been put together in a way that uh, the, the reading, I just have to turn the pages. Uh, so it's day one, day two, day three, day four, and, uh, and that works well for me. Um, I, I try to journal, I try to keep notes. Um, uh, all of those are, um, are, are ways for me to, to kickstart prayer. So I've used books of prayers. Valley of Vision uh, has been a great help to me in the past. Um, you know, books on the Lord's Prayer, um, books about prayer, maybe not so much. They, they just tend to make me feel guilty. Um, but uh, books of prayer uh, I, find, uh, I find helpful. I, I, I'm, I, I, need, I need something to, to fan the flames. So whether it's a hymn, uh, whether it's uh, a little devotional, some, something to, to sort of ignite those... Uh, those um, embers. Any further questions? We're almost on the hour. We were hoping to sort of bring it to a close because the turkey is calling. But if there are any, uh, if there are any other questions, we'll have a Q and A again uh, in our second s- semester. Um, but uh, thank you, thank you if you were one of the ones, as I know some of you were, uh, who asked these questions.